0: I was like trying to simplify but then it's not simple and it's
1: like Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's
2: Academical Village This is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization Staffed
1: by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy At the University of Virginia
2: With a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical Welcome in, my name is Sean Bolowski, and I'm a second year MPP student. I'm really excited about this week's episode for a few reasons. First, it deals with foreign policy, which is something we have not tackled yet this year on Academical. Second, my co-host is Morgan Bedford, who is also a second year MPP student. Morgan is an amazing and brilliant person who I'm really thankful to have gotten to know these past couple years. Last, we're gonna talk about an incredibly timely topic. Morgan has worked for the U.S. Embassy in Yemen, and it's become clear that the conflict in Yemen will be an early foreign policy focus for the Biden administration. So Morgan invited on Nadwa al-Dasari to talk about what's going on in Yemen. Nadwa is a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute, and she is a Yemeni-American who still has family back in Yemen. She has over 20 years of field experience and spends her time and effort trying to influence policy towards Yemen. We spoke with Nadwa last week prior to some significant movement from the Biden administration. Biden announced he was ending U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's efforts in Yemen, and the State Department on Friday just said it was lifting a terrorist designation the Trump administration placed on the Houthis. We spoke with Nadwa about these topics on lifting the terrorist designation. While the Biden administration believes that this designation would end up hurting more civilians rather than the Houthis, Nadwa isn't so sure that the Biden administration's reversal was the right move, which she explains in our conversation. This is a really complex problem that's difficult to explain in one podcast episode. Our hope is that this episode can serve as an overview of the situation and gives our listeners an incredible perspective from someone who is as invested as anyone for a lasting, peaceful solution in Yemen. So let's get to it and let's meet Morgan. So Morgan, we're talking, and it is Tuesday—the first, the the first Tuesday of the first week of class for the spring semester. How are How are you feeling as we begin the spring semester?
1: I'm feeling very excited, I'm almost a little eager to see what the semester has to offer. With it being our last one here at Batten, um, it's been great to start meeting up with friends for a socially distanced coffee and enjoy the snow and overall, just um, very refreshing to be back and uh, really see everything come full circle in terms of our, our baton life.
2: I've seen a lot of folks who um, on social media and whatnot, a lot of our classmates who are saying, oh, it's um, my last first day of school. And I, I want to warn folks that uh, this is now my third last first day of school. So you never know what, what's, what, uh, what the future holds.
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> well, it, it's funny, Morgan. You say that we've come full, full, full circle because I think you were the um, the person in our cohort, uh, the first person that I had like a meaningful interaction with, and it was when we were uh, walking to get our ID cards to O Hill. And um, learned about your background and how you went to Pepperdine, ran track there. You're from Northern Virginia. And so you went to school all the way a- across the country. And I'm just kind of curious if you, can, um, if you can elaborate on, on what it was that, that brought you to Batten in the first place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I was remembering our, our walk over to O'Hill the other day, too. Um, I think I was drawn to Batten for, for several reasons. One being... Um, I attended Pepperdine for undergrad, and Pepperdine's mission is purpose, service, and leadership. And I really am drawn to those pillars in both my personal and professional life, and within the Baton curriculum, and in the environment, I saw very strong parallels. And so I wanted to continue being part of a a community that's not only focused on creating good and productive policy, but also serving our communities in any way that we can, um, so that was one of the main reasons. Um, I think the opportunity to learn at this university with brilliant minds, kind of at every corner was also very intriguing. And I was also just drawn to come back to the East Coast. Um, I'd love to uh, stay here for a while, uh, work in D.C. And, and be closer to family. So it would kind of fit all of those, um, those boxes.
2: What, um, I guess... Two questions here: When and uh, when did you first get kind of drawn to foreign policy issues? And and um, and what about it kind of kind of drew you to foreign policy?
1: Yeah, um, that's a great question. For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a journalist growing up, and I went back and forth between ESPN or the Today Show, uh, kind of in the different types of news that I would cover. And I had the opportunity to intern in Senator Kane's office while I was in high school. And it was in 2015, and uh, the Iran nuclear deal was a big topic. The Syrian civil war was a big topic. And I think it all kind of clicked when I was in his office like, oh, there's this whole world of foreign policy, of, of foreign affairs, and there's so much happening. Like, there's something happening every waking minute. And I found that very intriguing. Um, and I began to see different connect, like the, different similar, not different similarities, similarities between being a journalist and being a diplomat. And that there's this very deep desire and um, a deep uh, drive to not only explore the world, but to share those experiences um, and to share the truth. And I think both careers foster um, a very deep sense of curiosity. Um, But then as a diplomat or as a foreign policymaker, I realized I could make those changes that I would be reporting on as a journalist. And so I really wanted um, to have a career more focused on the action. Um, So I started studying foreign languages and studying abroad and kind of at that point I was in too deep and uh, was really enjoying it. So here I am, but I think what keeps me going within foreign policy is that And I think through this work, there are so many opportunities to serve. Um, I think whether that's using the different tools that the US has to support legislation to protect women and girls from gender based violence, or facilitating the distribution of humanitarian aid, or even protecting our country from a nuclear uh, war, Um, among so many other things, I see that as. An active service and contributing to making not only the U.S. but our global community a little bit safer um, and a little bit more secure than when I found it.
2: I think that's really, really fascinating. About you know, you mentioned those um, the similarities between a diplomat and a journalist and the skill sets. And I think that's I think that's so spot on. And I think that the skill sets um, needed to be a good journalist or a good diplomat. Are, are so translatable to, um, to really anything you want to go into from a professional standpoint. And I think that's, that's very well put, right? If you're a, gen- a journalist, you're holding power to account. Whereas if you're actually in the machine, then you, you can, you're basically doing the same thing, right? You're getting all that information, but then using it to, to, um, you know, it's actionable, intelligence right as opposed to just having to report on it i think that is um that's really fascinating well h- how did you come um and so you have um you focused on the uh the conflict in yemen and you've done some work with the us embassy in yemen and i'm curious how did that how did that come about
1: yeah so i began my internship with the U.S. Embassy in Yemen virtually uh, to to preface uh, through the Virtual Student Foreign Service Program, which is run by the U.S. government. It's a phenomenal program and that covers both foreign and domestic um, opportunities. And I had previous experience working in the humanitarian assistance um, conflict management space, and I'd studied a little bit of Arabic. Um, So I saw this opportunity and was like, Yes, of, yes, of course. It sounds wonderful. Um, I've been with them since August of 2019. So kind of will have run my course with my time at Baton. And I support the political section over at the embassy. So we cover a, a wide range of topics um, and there's always something happening in Yemen. Um, so it, it keeps me busy. It keeps me on my toes. But um, it has been, I think, one of the most rewarding and empowering experiences that I've had. Also challenging.
2: I I think, too, and we should we should throw the disclaimer out there. This is uh, you're not speaking on behalf of the the embassy in Yemen. And so we'll we'll make make that um, make that clear. But but I'm um, you know, we we had a great conversation with Nadwa al-Dasari from the Middle East Institute. And she's from Yemen, still has family there and, um, you know, is really, you know, doing her best to kind of influence, I think, US policymakers in, in, the, in the direction that, um, that the US should take there. Um, I, I wondered, you know, for, for folks that have not, um, that aren't intimately familiar with the conflict in Yemen, I think a lot of people probably know it just from the headlines for the humanitarian crises that have been there, um, or that have occurred there that are ongoing there as we speak. But I was wondering if we could just kind of at the basic level, let's maybe go through just a geographic breakdown. Where is Yemen um, and where um, where are these conflicts uh, taking place? And, and just essentially like kind of you know what, what's behind these conflicts? Very simple question, right?
1: Yes, yes, a very simple question. Um, so Yemen is situated on the southwestern corner of the Arabian Peninsula. It borders Saudi Arabia to its north and Oman to its east. Um, it has access to the Red Sea, which leads up to the Suez Canal and, and Mediterranean, so um, kind of a very geographically strategic point from from a maritime and, and trade perspective. Um, and then it's and, and across that Strait is the Horn of Africa, um, which comes into play with migrants wanting to move through Yemen and up to and up to Saudi Arabia. So that's an important aspect. Um, There are five areas under dispute that I point to uh, for new Yemen watchers. The first is Hudaydah, which is on the Western coast and has port access. Um, I think the the war in Yemen is a war over money and power. And so all of these five different areas that I'll uh, be briefly uh, describing uh, really go into that uh, power and money dynamic. So there's Hudaydah. Um, the next that I point to is Marib, which is in central Yemen. Um, it's known to be the last stronghold of the Republic of Yemen government, so it's important in terms of the, the conflict between the government and the Houthis. Um, the next area that I point to is Al-Baida, which is a, just a little bit south of Marib. That's primarily where Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and the Islamic State in Yemen operate, although not as significant Now, um, but that's that's where they operate, and so CT watchers will want to look there. The fourth area that I point to is Aden, and the eastern government next to it, Abiyan. Aden is the interim capital of Yemen. Um, the government recently returned there in December of 2020. And... Um, It is important because it's interim capital and also there are tensions between the ROIG and the Southern Transitional Council there, which I'll go into in a little bit. Um, And then the last area that I point to as um, an important glimpse into the struggle between regional powers and local political powers is the island of Socotra. Um, It's located kind of in the uh, south of, of Al-Mahra um, and Hadramaut, but it, it's geographically distant because it's an island, um, but I think the local politics are very interesting. Um, I think at the same time, it's I think a little bit easier to understand the areas under dispute if we look at the major um, actors involved in the conflict. Um, and so I think there, the way I like to look at this is that there are three main parties to the conflict, but then there are also parties that are influential in the conflict. The three main parties involved in the conflict are the Houthis, the Republic of Yemen government, and the Southern Transitional Council. The Houthis are a Zaydi Shia military organization. They originate from northern Yemen, which is very mountainous. Um, It's land of the coffee, Um, but they um, oversee most of the mountainous and northwestern part of of Yemen, they do receive some support from Iran, from various intelligence sources. Um, So recently you've seen kind of the Iran angle on on the Yemen conflict, and that's where that comes in. The next is the Republic of Yemen government, which is currently led by President Hadi and Prime Minister Mayen Abdul-Malik. Um, they, are, they have been in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia in exile for the past couple of years, but have recently returned to Aden, uh, which leads me into the third uh, major party to the conflict, which is the Southern Transitional Council. Um, Yemen before 1990 was two separate states. There was North Yemen and South Yemen, um, and the Southern movement within Yemen is advocating for secession. And so the Southern Transitional Council is the, the loudest, the most prominent, the one with military um, forces and political forces as well. Um, and recently the STC and the Republic of Yemen government formed a joint cabinet. And so there's this ongoing struggle within Aden. Um, I'll leave it at that for all of my uh, Yemen watchers who are happy to, to go into it further, but. Those are the three main parties to the conflict. So if I haven't lost anyone yet, there are other influential parties in this conflict, I think, that are critical in understanding. Um, there are Yemeni tribes, which are an integral part of Yemen's social fabric, and the tribes are located across the country. Um, it's really hard to define them as an entire group because each one is different than their are are different tribal codes and norms and leaders and alliances. But um, they do align with all of the major parties to the conflict at, at some point in time um, to advance security, to protect their communities. Um, kind of going back to this power and money thing. They're an influential factor. Another influential party would be the violent extremist groups. So like I mentioned earlier, um, there's al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and the Islamic State in Yemen. They're not too significant now, um, but they are still active more or less in central Yemen. And then the last, I think, major influence in the conflict that I think it's important for people to to know of are women in, in civil society organizations. They've done a lot in trying to promote peace on the ground to deliver humanitarian aid to advocate for accountability in human rights abuses. And I think they're critical to watch because they are are very loud um, and they have a lot of really good things to say. So I think those are the major influencers.
2: I I have one quick question on this more. So um, I feel like in, you know, as, as Americans that a lot of time, and this is something that, that I think I have much more of an appreciation for after our conversation with Nadwa um, is that um, you know we kind of look at it and, and she brings this up in you know either counterterrorism or Iran, Saudi Arabia. And I feel like you know with the, the actors that, that you um, that you've laid out, especially like with the Houthis, and um, you know it, it kind of feels like, we try to paint this as a good guy, bad guy, versus how you feel about Iran and Saudi Arabia. And however you feel about Iran or Saudi Arabia, one side gets labeled as like, you know, the good side and the other side gets labeled as the bad side. Right. And, and I, I don't know. I, it's, it's just, um, it's way more, um, more complex and nuanced than that. And um, you know, it, it's, it, it just feels like it, it's tough to, to try to say, um, you know, who are the, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think the um, the UN panel of experts just released their 2020 report, and I think one of my takeaways from it is that both sides have their faults, and at the same time, some of those faults are are directly harming people on the ground, and uh, Yemenis are facing severe harm and discrimination, marginalization because some of them, you know I'm thinking of the Houthis primarily have been following them a little bit more closely this past week. And you know, people, people's lives are at risk because of, of their actions. And I think on the, the panel of experts noted that some of the decision decisions the ROIG makes falls more under the corruption and the bribery and more of the economic um, decisions that can be made to exploit people on the ground.
2: Well, and I think this kind um, of—I think that was a fantastic overview. I really appreciate you doing that, and it it is truly a really complex uh, situation to break down, especially to break down over a podcast. So I I think you did a really, really awesome job of that. Um, Well, now you know we, as I mentioned, we had a chance to talk with Nadwa Dasari from the Middle East Institute, and um, we kind of bring this up with her. But she, you know, being uh, being Yemeni, having family there. And rightfully, you know, she is very much advocating for a a U.S. response and in a in a, in a policy framework that really tries to, um, you know, allow and enable a lasting peace rather than something that's kind of a kind of a quick fix.
1: Yes, absolutely. She is advocating for a policy policy response that's um, sustainable and that puts Yemenis at the center of. The peacemaking process, which I think it is critical in our policy response, is putting the people who know the country best, who know the people best, at uh, the forefront of the decision making. Um, there's more ownership in those decisions, and you know, at the end of the day, it's their country. Um, and I, so, I think her her position is very accurate. I think in our our U.S. response um, to make it a lasting piece, there are different tools that we have available um, that we can use to elevate Yemeni voices. Um, I'm thinking of education programs, of climate resiliency programs, of women's empowerment programs, of transitional justice, of demining, of human rights accountability, of free press, and there are so many different tools that we have that we can um, support this entire goal of of peace and reconciliation but at the same time these programs allow for Yemenis to be at the center of the decisions and it allows us to amplify their voices and to show that there's really a new a new way perhaps that U.S. policy can begin to respond to some of these conflicts. Um, I think in Yemen there are so many different options in which this new administration, um, using its momentum to create a lasting peace, um, can really chart forward a different path and how that looks. Um, you know, I think clearly easier said than done. Um, I'm definitely more of an optimist. Um, in these types of situations, but I think there are some really cool tools at our disposal that we have available, but only if Yemenis on the ground want that that support and want that help.
2: Well, Morgan, thank you again so much for setting this up. I learned a ton with our um, just from our conversation just now and also our conversation we have with uh, with Nadwa and so without further ado, here is our conversation with Nadwa al-Dasari from the Middle East Institute. Well, Nadwa, again, thank you so much for for taking the time, and and I know that this is a um, you know a lot's gone on in the last few months uh, within Yemen domestically. Obviously, there's a, a new presidential uh, administration that's coming in, in in the last week, and and so I'm just kind of curious with everything that's gone on and and with the the change in, US, in the U.S. administration. You know, just simply, how how are you feeling?
0: Um, I feel a little concerned because. The Trump administration um, gave the Saudis and the Emiratis a kind of free hand in Yemen um, and conditional support. And that caused the conflict to become even more complicated than it was um, because the Trump administration looked at Yemen from uh, an Iran lens. My concern is that the Biden administration uh, giving the statements that President Biden and, you know, people close to him um, gave on Yemen over the past months and on on also the, you know, support to the Saudi. My concern is that the Biden administration will look at Yemen from a Saudi lens. So in other words, will put pressure on the Saudi, which is needed, of course, but without also keeping in mind that the Iranian threat through the Houthis in Yemen is also real, not only to the region, but to to the Yemenis as well. So um, I'm hoping that the Biden administration will will be more balanced, will uh, try to understand the nature of the conflict in Yemen, the regional dynamics, but also the local dynamics, because the conflict in Yemen started as as a local conflict before all these you know, regional actors got involved. Um, I thought that the, the Biden administration uh, decision kind of put the, um, the Houthi designation as a terrorist group on hold was a smart one because it gives the administration time to look at the decision and uh, study the impact of the decision before, you know, before, uh, before, I guess before they make a, a final word on it. So, um, so I'm I'm concerned. I'm a bit hopeful. Um, it's always it's always a concern with us Yemenis what the U.S. Admin- administration will do, all the administrations because they've always looked at Yemen from either regional lens or counterterrorism lens. And I just hope that the Biden will Biden administration will try to talk to more Yemenis. Um, more Yemeni parties to try to understand the the conflict, um, you know, from a local perspective and then decide what kind of approach it will take to help resolve it.
1: Thank you. I think you touched on some very critical points that I hope that we can dive deeper in throughout our, our conversation. I'm wondering for our listeners who are just tuning in and this is the first time they're hearing about Yemen How do you, as a Yemeni scholar, explain the situation um, in Yemen and how has it evolved over the past 10 years, even the past year?
0: Well, um, it's always tough for me to to try to simplify the Yemen conflict. I I try and then I end up, you know, giving a lot of details. So I will try. Um, So the conflict in Yemen is the result of like decades of political marginalization and grievances that unfortunately in when the Arab Spring happened in 2011 um, and the youth took to the street demanding the removal of the government of uh, or the removal of the former president Ali Abdullah Saleh and demanding reform, that was a moment where a, a good change could have happened. But what happened was that the Saudis and the UN and the international community, including the US, the US ambassador himself was very involved in this, intervened and brokered a political settlement between Saleh and his uh, opponents. Uh, His opponents have in fact hijacked the youth revolution, the youth uprising. And then we ended up with a political settlement between the the political elite who are all corrupt. Um, and the grievances remained unaddressed. Um, Salah was removed from power, but he resented that, and he, in order to um, undermine the transition process post his removal, he allied with the Houthis. So the Houthis are Zaydi Shia rebel who have fought the government uh, between 2004 and 2010, so a year before the youth uprising. Um, So technically Saleh and the Houthis are enemies, but Saleh allied with the Houthis to take revenge from his opponents who are now the key players in the in the new government um, post-2011. Um, and so Saleh was removed from power, but he also had, he remained in control of most of the armed forces and the weapons, and that helped him. Um, so with support from Saleh, the Houthis managed to descend from the north and storm different cities and eventually capture the capital city of Sana'a in 2014, September, 2014, um, and then expand throughout the country. And then the, Saudi, the, Saudi, the Saudis in, formed a coalition and they intervened in March, 2015, because they feared that um, Houthis being allied with Iran and backed by Iran. They feared that they will take over Yemen, and they have taken over Yemen by then, um, and pose a direct threat to their stability, to their security. Um, Saudis have always considered Yemen as a, as its own backyard, unfortunately. Um, and so the war started, 2014, uh, escalated in 2015 when the Saudis and the Emiratis intervened. Um, and since then, since then, what happened was that the Saudi-led coalition entered the war. Um, the Saudis and the Emiratis who are in coalition did not even have um, – uh, uh, did not see eye-to-eye in Yemen. So they supported different proxies. So the, the Emiratis backed the Southern Transitional Council uh, in the South, uh, which and armed actors who are affiliated with the Southern, Southern Transitional Council. It's also backing the nephew of former President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who is now in the West Coast, um, while the Saudis support the government. And, and in the South, fighting between the Saudi-backed Yemeni government and the, and the UAE-backed Southern Transitional Council have undermined the ability of the government to function in areas where Houthis have been pushed out from while everybody's talking about the Houthis and the Hadi government as the main actors, there are other actors on the ground that are supported by by the UAE um, and also other actors who are just running their own affairs locally, local authorities, who have some sort of independence, autonomy, still loosely affiliated with the Yemeni government, but they're also running their own affairs. So all these other actors, apart from the Houthis and the Hadi government, are not really, are not calculated uh, when people talk about the conflict or peace in Yemen. Uh, They're not participants in the UN-led negotiations. And by the way, the UN-led negotiations have so far failed, uh, mainly because the main parties to the conflict are not really interested in peace and because it's, it's not inclusive of all the other actors.
1: On the UN negotiations, there were there was the Stockholm Agreement back in 2018 between the Houthis and the internationally recognized government, the ROIG, uh, as we like to call it. Um, but that has, you know, the one of the main clauses of that agreement was a prisoner exchange, and that exchange just happened a few months ago. I think over the last summer. Um, so it's an interesting. I think looking at the UN role is is very interesting, as everything takes a little bit of time and, and I think you highlighted this perfectly there are so many different actors involved and you know we were just mentioning kind of um, the regional I guess scope of those involved in the in the country when you go down to within Yemen there are various militia groups and the tribes and civil society and the local authorities that you mentioned so I think the, the UN efforts in particular are very interesting when you try and make sure everyone has a voice at the table, but then in a way that's not enabling voices that are harmful
0: or would continue the violence. I mean, the UN is enabling a major force that is that has been using just violence to advance their agenda, the Houthis. Um, the prisoner exchange happened uh, early, happened last last year. And it's been actually in the works since 2016. It's not something, it was attached to the Stockholm agreement, but it's been something that the, the parties have been working on for years before then. The problem with the Stockholm agreement is that it took off the military pressure on the Houthis. And without, And I I don't really blame the UN for not resolving Yemen conflict because it is beyond the UN to resolve Yemen conflict. Um, The UN simply does not have the leverage on the parties to force them to comply. Um, And the parties, particularly the Houthis, manipulate these processes. Um, So in this case, the... Stockholm agreement stopped the Hodeidah, the, the retaking of Hodeidah by the you know, government, allied forces, um, which were led by the UAE. But um, what happened then was that it took the pressure off of the Houthis, the military pressure, and Houthis used that to regroup and expand east. So with that, they were able to take large swaths of land east of Sana'a, and take over al jof And now they're threatening the last Marib, which is the last stronghold of the government. And by then, you know, all of us, a lot of us Yemenis were then screaming. We were like saying, this is a bad idea. You don't want to stop the government from retaking the seaport because this is important because it will weaken the Houthis militarily. And in my opinion, weakening the Houthis militarily um, will help Put the pressure needed on them so that they they feel threatened enough to uh, to accept some sort of a, you know concession, political solution, a compromise. But right now they have the upper hand, and so they don't have, they don't they don't see the need to compromise, um, which is why they're they're not interested in peace. So I, in my opinion, the Stockholm Agreement was. Um, was pretty disastrous in terms of its implications and impact on on the peace process and you know the potential for Yemenis to end this conflict.
2: Nadwa, you, you kind of talked about the, the UN's role, but. Uh... Kind of want to talk a little bit about the United States's role, and, and particularly kind of going back to the Obama administration, and, and you know what what have you seen? And and uh, you mentioned kind of looking at Yemen through a counterterrorism or a Saudi Iran lens that the U.S. you know tends to do. What, what's kind of been the um, how how did the how did the the policy uh, or the role of the U.S. change going from from President Obama to President Trump?
0: So the, the U.S. has never really had a Yemen policy. Um, or a strategy for that matter. The US intervention in Yemen has always been um, to prevent terrorism uh, and terrorist groups. And so it was always designed through these lenses, uh, lens. Um, I don't see much different between Obama and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Trump to be honest with you. In the case of Obama, Obama disengaged from the entire region, Yemen included, and he relied, relied pretty much on drones. And I think in the case of Obama, Trump, there is one um, common, common uh, you know, uh, approach to Yemen, which is uh, outsourcing. Both have outsourced Yemen to the Saudis and uh, also outsourced Yemen to the Emiratis to counter terrorism. And I think that's a huge mistake because both parties, the Saudis and the Emiratis um, have demonstrated lack of capability uh, and intention to stabilize Yemen and to fight terrorism. So I think it's important for the Biden administration to think of a Yemen policy and try to see Yemen from a a Yemen lens um, and design that by talking to Yemenis and Yemeni actors and Yemen experts rather than the Saudis or the Emiratis.
2: I think that that's a good overview kind of 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 bringing us up to... To the situation now, and and over the last month, um, there have been some pretty significant domestic events. Um, in December, there was a new government that was formed. Um, then on December 30th, there was uh, the airport in Aden that was attacked to try to disrupt kind of the the seating of, of that new government that killed dozens of people and, and wounded quite a bit more. Um, and kind of in the backdrop, you have you know um, the worst uh, humanitarian situation. Um, in Yemen and you know what kind of what kind of impact have have these events had um you know um, kind of looking back over the last few months?
0: I mean the return of the government to to Aden was a positive thing by itself Uh, but the government is in a very difficult position um mainly because it doesn't really have much power in the south military power because the southern transitional council and the armed forces that are affiliated with the 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 sdc the southern transitional council control Aden and and the surrounding area um and the scenario where the government is kicked out of of the south it happened in august 2019 it could happen if the sdc decides that it's not happy with what the government is doing and recently president Hadi issued um some appointments, he made some, he appointed uh, some political leaders into positions and the SDC leaders uh, voiced their uh, discontent of the decisions and they threatened to withdraw from the Riyadh agreement as a result. So the government position is pretty shaky. It created some hope that the government went back to Aden, but, but, but it's, still, its position is, is still pretty shaky and I think it will continue to be the case.
1: Another recent development within the Yemen US policy world has been the Houthi designation, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, but I was wondering, kind of based on your experience and in your networks, how has the re- has the recent designation and then Biden, President Biden's subsequent kind of pause on the designation um, affected Yemenis on the ground? And how do you think the that the designation or even a reversal of the designation? will impact the overall conflict with the Houthis? And was this even the right policy to, to put in place?
0: Yeah, I was against the designation, not because Houthis are not terrorists, they are terrorists, but because I believe um, that the designation will not really impact the Houthis, but it will uh, it will hugely impact the humanitarian, the already very, very um, bad humanitarian situation in Yemen. And, Basically, put millions of Yemenis at risk of, of famine. Um, but the designation happened and it's a reality now. Um, a lot of Yemenis, however, have celebrated the designation, and that is mainly the millions of Yemenis who have suffered directly or ind- indirectly from the cr- cruelty of the Houthis. These are people who have lost loved ones, um, you know, uh, or their homes were blown up by the Houthis or uh, Houthis killed or disappeared or tortured to death or um, you name it, you know, brutally uh, affected them or, or their loved ones um, or their areas. So in terms of do Houthis deserve to be designation, designated, I think they do. But then again, it's, it's not going to impact the Houthis much, uh, at least not immediately at the same time you know, the cost would be extremely high on Yemenis, um, on ordinary Yemenis. Now reversing the decision will also be problematic because it will send a signal to the Houthis that the Biden administration backs them and supports them. And certainly that's how the Houthis will sell it. They will sell it to, their, to the people that, well, the, the US government have succumbed to our demands. Um, so I think the Biden administration need to exercise caution um, in how they deal with with the review, um, they don't want Yemenis to feel that the Biden administration um, is blessing Houthi's brutality, and that Houthis and that's how Houthis will feel. Houthis will feel that they can continue to um, terrorize Yemenis with impunity. So it, it's very delicate, uh, you know. While you have to consider the humanitarian impact of the designation, you also have to consider how it will be perceived by the Houthis. It will embolden them, it will encourage them. So it's a, it's a moral dilemma and I don't know what the answer is to be honest with you, but I think I think that's something for the administration to think about.
1: On that note, I think your inclusion of the humanitarian aid situation is critical to understanding the entirety of the designation because about 70% of Yemenis live under Houthi control give or take a few. Um, so it, it's, it affects a lot of people on the ground. Um, and another thing I think is really interesting is that the Houthis, it seems like, have this divine sense of leadership and, and rule, that they've been called um, to rule Yemen from this divine power. How do you see that playing out, particularly with the designation and, and then their response to that?
0: Well, you know, I mean, Houthis do feel that they have a divine right to rule, and that's in their in their manifesto. It's available, the translation of it is available. They believe that the descendants of the Prophet, where, you know, the leader of the of the group now come from, um, are the eligible rulers of the Muslim world. They're not going to give up to give up their, their violent means. Um, it's it's something that's inherited. In the way they've, they've evolved and in the way they have interacted with pretty much everybody uh, across the board since 2004. Um, They are a violent group. They don't believe in negotiations. Um, So the humanitarian situation is really something very delicate. And the problem is that everybody's talking about access of humanitarian assistance. And the problem is that Houthis steal most of the humanitarian assistance that goes to the north. Yemenis really rely on the private sector more than the humanitarian assistance. And so how, you know, in the light of the designation, what can the Biden administration do to, you know, to, keep the economy at least afloat, you know? I don't know, I am not an expert in this, um, but without access to the private sector, which would be severely uh, limited as a result of the designation, um, a lot of Yemenis, millions of Yemenis would be impacted.
1: Yeah, I think the economy is also another kind of um, spin, I guess, in this whole designation, policy conversation is you know the Yemeni economy was already already very in a precarious state before the designation and with the designation and the lim- limiting of funds and the limited currency reserves it really just creates this whole a whole nother um, conflict or, or dispute within itself too um but I think having have, Absorb some of the more recent events in Yemen. And I feel like these are just really touching the surface of what's happening. Um, you know, there's so much happening on a day to day basis in the south and the north on the coast. Um, but I think moving forward, I think there's a real need to, and as you've mentioned, define US Yemen policy, you know, from country to country. Um, and it, it for decades, two decades at least, has been so focused on either counterterrorism or. coalition. So I'm wondering um, if you were, you know, if you were President Biden, or if you were advising President Biden, and you could set US policy um, in Yemen, kind of what would your approach be to the conflict? What are the things that you would consider? And if how should policymakers now be thinking about the conflict?
0: Um, I would first advise the Biden administration to um, to create a Yemen policy it's something that none of the previous administration have done and that's why you know the conflict in Yemen uh, that actually helped the situation deteriorate in Yemen because the. US leadership was absent and when it was there it really contributed to the negative factors rather than you know build on what can be done to to prevent further escalation in Yemen I I would advise the president uh, President Biden to, understand that Yemen is very important because if Yemen descends into chaos, then you have um, the international passage uh, threatened, you have the region threatened, um, and you have uh, 20 something million Yemenis who will be vulnerable to engaging with um, extremist groups. Um, and I'm not just saying Al Qaeda or ISIS. I mean, Houthis are an extremist group too, and their their slogan is "Death to America," and they do mean it. It's not just a slogan. Um, it's only now that they're busy with their with their you know with the fighting inside Yemen and also with the Saudis. Um, so that's one thing. The, the second thing is that I will I will tell President Biden to um, not support the current peace negotiations unconditionally. Um, The the current peace negotiations basically are between the Houthis and the Hadi government and and both do not represent Yemenis. um, And a political settlement between the two will, uh, will marginalize most other Yemeni groups and that will basically exacerbate grievances, create grievances, and uh, you know, set Yemen for even um, more intense cycles of conflict in the future. I would encourage uh, President Biden to use his leverage, the US leverage, on the Saudis and the Emiratis to, to be responsible, uh, f- to be more responsible actors, and to try to use their leverage on their proxies to bring Yemenis together. Um, in the case of the Emiratis, they can Use their leverage on the STC to bring STC closer to the Yemeni government. The same thing with with the with the with the Saudis. They can um, also, you know, hold the Yemeni government accountable, um, also for corruption. I mean, the the UN panel of expert report today mentioned that the Yemeni government has been involved in money laundering. They've laundered half a million, half a billion dollar. Um, <laughs> into pockets of individuals uh, and favorites um, of, of the Hadi regime. So I would, I would encourage the, the, the Biden administration to have a serious chat with the Saudis and the Emiratis to come up with concrete steps to end the war in Yemen and bring in different actors together. If the Saudis and the Emiratis work together, they can bring anti-Houthi forces together and that politically speaking, that will unite the, the political force against the Houthis um, and help, you know, help improve the peace negotiations and kind of also prevent the further deterioration uh, of the conflict that's happened because of the fighting between the anti-Houthi forces. So the most important part I want to mention to President Biden, and that's why I think he should talk to as many Yemenis as possible, uh, not necessarily representatives of Hadi and and the Houthis, but also other actors uh, in Yemen in areas that have emerged during the war as islands of stability. So we talk about the eastern part of Yemen, for example, we have Shabwa and Marib. These areas, by the way, they were part of the, what Saleh called, axis of evil. Um, They were named in the USAID strategy back in 2008. Um, I think the strategy was 2008, 2011, I can't remember. But anyway, in the strategy, those areas, there were concerns that those areas have become safe havens for uh, terrorists. Um, And they were marginalized, they lacked basic services, they were basically deserted areas. They were population, but there were no government and no services. And now when you go to these areas, I mean, the the transformation that they've witnessed uh, is is incredible. Um, eh, They have functioning local authorities better than anywhere else in the world. They have civil society, they have security forces, um, they have emerging local economy, they've hosted almost 3 to 4 million IDPs from other areas in the country. So they have huge potential. Um, and I think that's where the support needed, because these islands of, of stability can help create demand for peace in the future. Um, and so I think some support needs to go there. Some, the U.S. need to help improve governance and security and work with the local forces in these areas. And by the way, these are local authorities and they're part of the of the Yemeni government, they but they're they are autonomous because they're they run their own affairs without the need from the government to be involved uh much.
2: I was just gonna ask Nada, you know, kind of reading your your commentary, you know, since Biden uh, was elected, um and and even, you know, kind of your commentary even on Twitter this week, it just it feels like that um, you know, your concern is that, you know, Biden might look to try to put a band-aid on the problem and, and kind of call it a, a quick win. And you know, slap slap a piece, you know, a peace deal together, and it, it just feels like you know what what you're advocating for is just a more comprehensive, you know, something that actually gets to the root of the problem and can be a sustainable um, agreement, rather than, than something that you know President Biden could just say, "Look, there's peace," you know, let's uh, you know give me a Nobel Prize.
0: <laughs> exactly, 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 as you said it. Um, and you, you know, I I wouldn't blame Biden much because this has been the discourse of the UN of Western diplomats. Everybody has been so um, eager for a a political settlement between the Houthis and the Yemeni government to come out of the current uh, UN-led negotiations. And as Yemenis, we've been protesting against that. We've been saying that it's a political settlement that comes out of these negotiations will undermine peace, short and long term. It's not going to work. and it's funny because uh, it's like the narrative that's dominant out there. And even most Yemeni watchers, I don't know whether it's out of like lack of understanding of Yemen or because they just like to fit in the mainstream narrative and tell decision makers what they want to hear rather than you know what they want. what what they need to to hear. Um, They've been also advocating the same thing. I mean, with the exception of a a few uh, that have actually dived into the conflict in Yemen and identified the different dynamics and the different actors and said, no, the current negotiations as they are, they're not going to work. Um, So there's an overwhelming narrative an overwhelming um, discourse there that well, the Biden administration need to end the war in Yemen, that's another term, end the war, by kind of forcing the Saudis to force Hadi government to accept the Houthis into a political settlement. Um, but uh, if that happens, it's not going to bring peace, it's going to reward Houthi violence. And from our experience with Houthis, every time they agree to a settlement with anybody and even sign agreement, they take that as an opportunity to regroup and expand militarily. So, so I think um, I agree with you. And you know, you you've said it right. Biden needs to think about the long term um, and not think about a quick uh, a quick gain. And my concern is that you know President Biden is faced with a lot of challenges in the Middle East. I mean, the Iran um, the Iran file is very complex, and not selling arms to the Saudis also can be a good thing, but I don't think that the U.S. can afford to not sell arms to the Saudis, you know, for a long time. Um, so what, what my worry is that the Biden that Biden will think that Yemen would be kind of low-hanging fruit, an easy thing to do, um, to demonstrate a departure from, you know, the Trump era and also, you know, quote, unquote, end the war in Yemen because, you know, every, everybody thinks that um, If you have this political settlement, you end the war in Yemen, but the the term ending the war in Yemen has become so abused, so misused by think tanks, Yemen analysts, um, diplomats, everyone, um, that it's really unfortunate that it's becoming the mainstream uh, discourse. I
1: think one, one thing I've heard you kind of mention throughout this conversation is the theme of accountability and how do you hold... Local officials accountable, government officials accountable, and even like the U.S. or Saudi or the UAE accountable. And I think it's, um, I think it'll be very interesting moving forward to see how accountability, which can be such a vague and kind of very fluffy word, come um, into into reality. Um, and I hope that for uh, Yemenis on the ground who are who are suffering daily because of various decisions by by a number of people. I'm curious too. I think one thing I find really interesting about Yemen is um, its origins of coffee. I'm a huge coffee drinker, um, so I find I have an admiration for that. Um, but then also the tribes um, and also the role of women in society. And I think um, kind of with the whole with our climate crisis that we that we have going on in the Biden administration's. priority of tackling the climate crisis. I feel like Yemen um, fits into that somehow of of receiving support if if they need it for tackling water shortages or um, learning how to um, grow and harvest different crops in in new types of environment with the the changing climate. Um, But then I think also the role of the tribes is really interesting in terms of understanding Um, not only the conflict, but how to move forward and make peace. I was wondering for our listeners if you could briefly describe the role of the tribes in Yemen, noting that kind of like everything with Yemen, it's very complex and the details are are very important. But I was wondering if you could just briefly kind of go over that and how the Biden administration could incorporate them
0: into its policies. Uh, Sure. Um, Well, first of all, you'd be disappointed to know that I'm not a coffee drinker. So in Yemen, we also drink the shell of the coffee. Oh, interesting! The shell, yeah, that's that's actually what we call gahwa uh, or, or coffee in Yemen, and it's delicious. It has tons of um, of uh, nu- nutrients, nutrients, but also with much less caffeine than coffee. And uh, I drink that once in a while, but I'm I'm pretty much a tea drinker. Um, with the tribes, I, tribes are a very important actor in Yemen. One thing I want to say is that par, tribes are part of the Yemeni society, and they're also part of the kind of political, economic fabric of, of, of Yemen. Um, and tribes have been largely uh, a positive actor in, in Yemen conflict. One thing about the tribes is that they have their own inherited conflict resolution system. They resolve a lot of conflict They've always resolved a lot of conflict amongst them um, using traditional conflict resolution systems. And I think that's what helped Yemen. I mean, Yemen has always been a fragile state, a country that has. Basically, it takes all the marks of a failed state, but pretty much everywhere you go in Yemen, with the exception of front lines, is kind of safe. Uh, The crime level is not really high, especially in rural areas, and that's because of the tribes they have very sophisticated system to fight crime, uh, maintain security, and resolve conflict, and also put um, and also um, prevent extremist groups from expanding. And that's something I discussed in my report uh, that was published a couple of years ago about the relationship between tribes and al-Qaeda. Um, and the tribes continue to be a, a, a really good uh, player. Uh, you talked about the prisoner exchanges. In fact, the thousands and thousands had been of prisoners, not just prisoners, but abductees and, and fighters had been released through uh, tribe and mediations. That's, that's not including the UN um, you know, recent prisoner exchange. Um, but the tribes also are part, again, as this, as they're part of the society. Governors come from tribes. Um, local council members come from tribes, civil society members come from tribes. So they're, they're, they're already incorporated into Yemen's, um, political and economic and, and structures. So I, 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 I don't recommend that the Biden administration incorporate the tribes into a policy or deals with the tribes directly. I've always thought that any outside actor should not deal with the tribes directly because that will upset. Their balance um, and kind of interfere with the way they, they um, you know they function, which has been very good for the Yemeni society uh, because of the services they provide. But I would encourage Biden to again to look at the islands of stability and areas where you know where the tribes have helped local authorities and security actors to improve services and improve security. And that's what happened in, in Ma'arib and, and, and Shibwa. Everybody asked me, why do you think these areas have bloomed during the war? What are, what are the factors that helped them bloom? And I think the tribal dimension has been one of the factors because the tribes did support the local authorities to, you know, to, um, to, to, um, to take the responsibility and provide services. Thank you, thank you.
1: When I first
0: heard of the Yemeni
1: tribes, um, I was I had a hard time differentiating, I guess, the role of tribes to the role of Native Americans or, or Indigenous peoples, kind of in the in North America and and, and, and out, really across the globe. And and they're very quite, quite different. So thank you for kind of walking us through that.
0: Yeah, because like in, in America, so Native Americans, they're tribes, right? I mean, it's similar. Um, here, you have all the Europeans who came and then the Europeans built the state. But in Yemen, everybody is a tribe. Saleh, the president of the republic, came, you know, came from a tribe. Most Yemeni officials came from tribes. I come from a tribe. So it really is, you know, Yemenis or most Yemenis, you know, one way or another, uh, track their, either now or track their roots to a certain tribe in Yemen.
2: how has COVID, how, how has that kind of complicated things in, in, in Yemen?
0: Honestly, uh, at the beginning, there were a lot of deaths, and then the situation improved over the summer. Um, it doesn't seem that COVID is a problem in Yemen, uh, as far as I know. And I I don't know why, but Yemenis have never really followed any covid prevention protocols, they didn't do lockdown, they didn't do social distancing, they just went about their business like COVID didn't exist. And a friend of mine, I I can't say that because I'm not really a specialist in the area, but a friend of mine likes to think that um, Yemenis probably reached herd immunity. And maybe that's what happened because we don't see any reports of so many people dying as a result of COVID. Uh, not since last May.
2: Hmm, interesting. Well, um, this is the question we asked in all of our podcast episodes. What is a, a leadership lesson that you've learned that you wish someone would have told you as either an undergraduate or graduate student?
0: I think a good leadership lesson is to listen and learn. I definitely grew intellectually and professionally by listening and learning. And I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not. I mean, there are times where I, I like to talk more than I listen, and I wish I, I didn't, um, but to listen and to learn is is really core to any leadership, um, and to empathize also.
2: That'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Nadwal Dasari from the Middle East Institute. Thank you to Morgan Bedford for putting this together, and thank you to Ben Feldman and Ben Teese for helping out with production. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.